Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 136, The Boston Massacre. Last time out, we looked at the Townsend Crisis. In response to the highly unpopular Townsend duties, a non-importation movement had spread around America. It was even supported by noted Virginian gentleman George Washington. But its heart and soul was in Boston, where the customs commissioners had been forced out of the city and the army was brought in to keep them safe. The British decided that the Townsend duties were not worth it, and Prime Minister Lord North announced his intention to repeal them on March 5th, 1770. I left the episode on a bit of a cliffhanger, but when we dive into events in Boston, the SS narrative will eventually take us straight to the revolution, so I want to take a quick moment to look at the changing nature of the frontier. Since Pontiac's war, our attention has been glued to the cities of the Atlantic coast, particularly Boston, but the area of British influence had dramatically expanded. Not only were the British pulled deep into the American interior, but they also had a new set of Canadian colonies in the north and the two Floridas in the south. The British discouraged settlement of the interior and encouraged people to migrate to Canada and Florida. This had a lot of logic to it. Pontiac's war had shown the British the dangers and the costs of hostilities with the Native American tribes. That was trouble they could do without. They had brand new colonies that were on the Atlantic coast, which meant much better communication and supply lines with Britain. While making sense on paper, in practice it was bound to fail. There were still Native Americans living in Ontario, and further north, Canada, was, well cold. It was very cold. There were long winters and it wasn't a particularly appealing option. There were ideas of creating settlements on Cape Breton Island and Prince Edward Island, but these weren't actually carried out. Meanwhile, there was Florida. East Florida, the peninsula, was mostly inhabited by the Seminole, a tribe that was part of the Creek Confederacy but which was leaning towards independence. There was very little European presence in the area. The Spanish capital, St. Augustine, was established in 1565, but remained a military outpost on the fringes of the Spanish orbit, used to protect their Caribbean possessions from the British colonies. When the few Spanish left the colony at the end of the Seven Years' War, and Colonel James Grant, the British governor, arrived, the Seminole sort of shrugged their shoulders. It didn't make any difference to them. Whatever a British piece of paper said, this land was theirs. Still, British investors purchased vast amounts of land and brought over workers, but nothing worked. At first, settlers from South Carolina and Georgia tried planting rice and indigo, but that didn't work. Then some thought to try semi-tropical goods, but the trees and vines died, as did the workers. It was hot and swampy, full of mosquitoes and disease. The only positive for the British 
is that lack of settlers meant they had no reason to fight with the Seminole. Then there was West Florida, composed of the Florida Panhandle, Pensacola, along with the southern parts of modern Alabama and Mississippi. Its main settlement was Mobile, and it was a much more attractive proposition to colonists than East Florida. And slave plantations started to spring up by 1774. A few French colonists stayed, and Mobile and Pensacola soon established themselves as locations for trade with the Creek, Choctaw, and Chickasaw. Even while suffering from mismanagement, by 1766, a lower house of assembly was founded, but this was as developed as the colony would ever get. It was threatened by the Creek, but ultimately it would be the Spanish who would reclaim the province. Unable, or unwilling, to move into Canada or Florida, the population of the Americas pushed westwards. We've already looked at some examples of this, notably the attempt of the Connecticut Susquehanna Company to settle in the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania before the Seven Years' War. This caused problems. In 1773, the colony of Georgia purchased two million acres of land south of the Savannah River from the Cherokee and Creek in exchange for cancellation of debts, an arrangement that ultimately left the Cherokee and Creek dissatisfied. But this was nothing compared to what was happening further north. In Virginia and North Carolina, Colonizers started to settle along the Tennessee and Kentucky rivers, the first of what American history books call the Pioneers. This area was particularly attractive to the colonists, given the power of the Six Nations, in the years after the French and Indian War, whereas what would become Kentucky was considered a neutral hunting ground between the Cherokee, Shawnee and Iroquois. In the decade before the War of Independence, there were numerous attempts up and down the frontier of the American colonists to move into the interior of the continent, while the British continued to resist, being frustrated by the difficulties it caused in relationships with the Indians. It further soured relationships between the colonies and the metropole, but it was not enough to destroy it. No. That was happening in Boston. Most Americans still considered themselves to be citizens of the British Empire. We have to remember how that was still the prevailing opinion, but if there was an exception, it was Boston. While the Prime Minister announced his intention to repeal the Townsend duties on 5th of March 1770, the situation in Boston was escalating. On February 22nd, a mob gathered outside the house of an informant, Ebenezer Richardson. Richardson refused to be removed, so he pulled out a musket and fired into the crowd, killing the 11-year-old Christopher Snyder. Over the following days, fights broke out between soldiers and the workmen, and it was agreed the conflict would be resumed on March 5th. Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson was urged to remove the troops from the city, but he refused. A mob of 50 or 60 gathered, and a group of eight soldiers met them. 
The mob were then hit with snowballs, and then what was later described as either sticks or clubs, depending on which side you were on. A soldier was knocked down, and somebody, it is assumed it was a soldier, shouted fire. The muskets were discharged into the crowd. Five civilians were killed, six were wounded. Most were innocents, observing behind the crowd. News spread around the city, and it was only by promising the soldiers would be brought to trial for murder that Hutchinson was able to maintain any semblance of calm. They were placed in jail, and after a town meeting and a meeting of the council, the rest of the troops were moved out of the city, with one regiment remaining on Castle Island. The event became known as the Boston Massacre. For a number of months, an uneasy peace endured. Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and the other Patriot leaders wanted vengeance, so the trial was held off until the autumn when tempers had cooled. The soldiers were defended by Thomas Uchperty, John Adams, and Josiah Quincy, and it was decided that the commander was innocent in October. He fled to England, where he was given a pension by King George. Most were found innocent that they had acted in self-defence, while two soldiers were charged with manslaughter and were punished by being burnt in the hand. As we entered late 1770, the situation was calming down. The British had backed down over the Townsend duties. While Sam Adams wanted agitation to continue, most were eager to return to some sort of normalcy. The boycott of British goods was restricted to taxed tea, and this might have been the end of it, had not the British refused to let sleeping dogs lie. The years after 1770 were generally calm, even in turbulent Massachusetts. Thomas Hutchinson was sworn in as governor in March 1771. He was a genuinely popular figure, and a true match for Sam Adams. The first few years of his governorship were considered successful. There was disquiet along the frontier, and there were minor conflicts. A notable one was the issue of the Gaspy in Rhode Island, where some smugglers attacked a ship whose commander had enforced the Navigation Acts. An American authored book describes the enforcement as arrogantly zealous, while a British authored book describes it as inconveniently diligent. A commission of prominent Americans was set up to investigate, but the commission was cautious and didn't accomplish anything. Despite this, General Gage remarked in 1772 that America was in a state of profound tranquillity. Needless to say, this was all about to come crashing down. While it may not feel it, we are now only four episodes away from the outbreak of the American Revolution. Join me next time, when the situation really begins to get out of hand, over the issue of taxed tea. Leading, of course, to the Boston Tea Party. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then.